Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. There's a heated debate over controlling student numbers again. We'll get across that. We've got new research on cost of living and belonging. Uh, we'll review activity on campus in the wake of the situation in the Middle East and which universities are best for social mobility. It's all coming up. I mean, the whole tenor of the correspondence with universities is enormously uh, finger waggy. So, I mean, I think the tone is absolutely reprehensible. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to help us get acquainted with this week's developments, as usual, three fabulous guests. Uh, in the Shard today in London, Rachel Sandby-Thomas is Registrar at the University of Warwick. Rachel, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, highlight, low light. Uh, all I would say is a lot of time has been taken up with the current um, Israeli Gaza development. So I, don't, I couldn't call it a highlight, but it has been occupying a lot of my space. There we go. And in Wool's End today, Gary Hughes is Chief Exec at Durham Student Union. Gary, your highlight of the week, please. Selfishly, because I'm a homosexual of a certain age, I'm going to go and see S Club 7 tonight, um, or S Club, however many we have um, remaining. So I, I, I'm just mostly focused on that. Excellent stuff. And in Tamworth this week, Sunday Blake is Associate Editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week is actually today because I'm going to see the whole wonky team in person at Senate House Library and then... Uh, you can get the train from Tamworth, that is. It, it, that, exactly that. <laughs> and then uh, I'm going to the Eversys Student Engagement Conference, uh, which is in the same building. So that's very exciting. Busy day on the trains for Sunday. So yes, we start this week with student number controls. On Monday, Policy Exchange published proposals for King's speech content, and there was higher education material in there, Gary. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's that time of year, isn't it? It's various think tanks and policy people uh, are producing what we want the government to do uh, in the King's speech. It's the, the Policy Exchange report itself has got quite a lot of proposals in there, because um, there's one author, he's got a lot on his mind. Um, but particularly, there's something which always surfaces um, whenever governments or policy people are thinking about uh, money and education, which is student number controls. Now, the policy exchange report ostensibly is talking about the, the need to fund um, skills development. And he's talking about a tax credit for um, organisations to spend on non-statutory or functional training. There, you know, that that's a very old idea, isn't it? There's the apprenticeship levy and all sorts of... Um, ways to address that and and maybe that's a good policy intention but not everything needs to be funded by taking things away from higher education and i think that is the flaw in it isn't it that the author um ian mansfield wants to talk about the fact that higher education is um costing the state far too much money because too many people are engaging in it uh, he speaks about the fact that there are um any institution that offers a place to somebody that pla- that person gets funding and it's just unsustainable um, I think my major issue with it, of course, is that HE and FE and skills development in adults are all important areas of policy. It's not the case that you have to rob from one to fund the other. 
But I do think we're going to see over the next year, certainly as we uh, ramp up towards an election, a discussion about the massive priority of education. You know, it's one of Kia's missions. It's something that, uh, you know, Julian Keegan is getting a lot of airtime comparatively. But it will be a really sad, lonely debate for those of us who care about education policy if everything is in the context of HE's got a lot of money, other bits of area need money, so let's just rob universities. It's not like the sector isn't doing incredibly important work in um, developing um, responses to challenges today, and I think we need better suggestions than are coming out from policy exchange. Yes, interesting. Now, 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 Rachel. Obviously, on on the one hand, this this is as Gary says, a sort of too many people are going to university, and it and it feels like Ian Mansfield here is having a different run at uh, trying to reduce the number of people going to university, having done lots of the stuff around um, you know minimum entry criteria and so on. But the you know the, the other argument I think that Ian would make if he was on the podcast this week would be the Treasury has to control its spend somehow. And this is a way to control it. I know. Well, I must say, I find this completely, uh, I find this completely mad um, and muddle-headed. This whole debate. So, if we go back to why we had student numbers, it was exactly uh, what uh, you're saying. Ian would say that you know it was government funding. They were doling out so much money. They had to control it just the same way that they do because they fund uh, doctors. So you know, doctor doctoral training. So. They uh, have to keep a cap on it. And that's fine. But why was it taken off? It was taken off because they stopped paying for fees and they made them into loans. So just because it swishes past the um, corners of the student loans company, they are treating it as if it was their money. But actually, the students are treating it as it's their money because they have to repay it back. So it makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, So either... You go back, you get rid of loans, and the state actually properly funds higher education uh, once again, and therefore you have the rationale for um, introducing student uh, um, numbers, uh, caps on it, or um, you stop pretending that they are directly funding universities via loans when those loans sit with the students, um, and you just let universities get on with it. So it seems to me that what he is trying to do is the worst of all possible worlds, but Rachel, to be fair, there's a, there's a balance, isn't there? Because it's not it's it's not you know loans versus uh, full funding. There's there's for you know for a couple of decades now been a sort of hybrid where the where the state does put some money in and graduates put some money in. Now, albeit that over the past few years, the calculations and the changes to the system mean that graduates will be putting far more in than they used to. The state still is putting a subsidy in there, and the state ought to determine how much that subsidy is and where it goes, hasn't it? Well, I would be very interested to see the breakdown because it doesn't feel at all as if the state is subsidising anything, uh, quite frankly. It feels as if it's universities or actually it's the universities and the students who are paying for most of it. But if we go back to why the student number controls cap was taken off, it was taken off because loans were introduced. Um, and if anything, if there is so much direct government subsidy, that that was part of that debate. Um, and the and the rationale behind it was loans were not direct finance therefore student number controls weren't um weren't appropriate anymore and i don't think anything has changed since that decision now if the rationale for this is which is somewhat different is that too many people it's considered too many people are going to university then they just kind of need to say that and they need to remove the aspiration but just be upfront about it 
But you also, I mean, it's very difficult to stop people without doing the number controlled. So actually what they should be doing is trying to make other routes more attractive. And you don't necessarily do that by saying university bad, evil, look at these ghastly universities, when in fact we are actually part of the jewel in the national crown. Um, you, you make other things more attractive, like apprenticeships and like FE funding or FE courses. But then, of course, you're going to have to you're going to have to increase the amount that's been put into FE because FE has been absolutely robbed by Treasury over the years. Um, yes, there's, there's, there's obviously a strong argument that says that what the, the, what this proposal does is is literally level down rather than level mm. up uh, uh, level down HE rather than level up FE, which is of course the you know the opening paragraphs of Olga. Um, uh, someday, obviously, one of the allegations whenever there are kind of number controls floated of any sort is that the first people that will suffer mm. will be students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Mm. Okay, right. I'm so glad that you've asked me this because I, I would just like to set the record straight here because I've been watching this debate for a few days now and it really annoys me when people say that student number caps is a wonky editorial line because I have a lot of opinions on uh, on different issues, but this one I don't have opinion on because I haven't thought about it enough to formulate an opinion and I don't want one attributed to me so I'm setting that straight um now I do have concern that and this is this is why I stay quiet on this issue by the way because these are my concerns I have some brain vomit around this and why I'm anxious around it I don't want to have a set opinion so like you've got (laughs) obviously as you say like student number caps the first concern is like if we're capping numbers who is it that doesn't go and like on one side of the spectrum you've got your sort of mummies and daddies who read the times and they're already concerned that, you know, Alfie and Amelia aren't going to end up going to university. So good luck selling that to voters at election time. Right. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got people in favor of like social progress, mobility, widening access, and they get very concerned that it's marginalized students who end up not going, which is actually quite a reasonable position to take. So unless we're sort of implementing better access measures alongside student number controls, the policy could be quite regressive. Um, but the, <laughs> but then there's this kind of like, um, like student experience line as well that sort of goes round and round in my head because you've got these horror stories that are coming out of the student housing sector this year, right? So low stock, overcrowding, and like something does need to be done about not just bums on seats, but also like bodies in beds, if that makes sense. And that's not even taking into account like staff capacity and, and learning space. And people who argue against student number caps never they they have not addressed the housing issue like satisfactory in a satisfactory way for me um because they seem to think that like housing will just magically spring up um and unless universities are actually doing something about like rent controls on the other side of this the access argument is out the window um in terms of finance we can't have maintenance increases unless we're doing rent controls, uh, because landlords just raise rents in line with uh, maintenance grants. And, you know, we may as well, like, take the student out the middle and get Student Finance England to just directly pay their mortgages off. Um, And then the other argument from the no cap crew is that if students can't afford to go to university, then they just won't go. And it's like a magic hand of the market numbers will magically be controlled but like cost of living data from the belonging research that we've launched this week it shows that students aren't dropping out they can't afford to go but they're not dropping out they're just having a really bad time and they're not engaging it meaningfully now the last point on this I promise it's about three lines turn it on its head right 
Okay, fine. We bring in number caps for home domicile students to ensure availability in the rental market. But when institutions ramp up their recruitment of international students to compensate, we then wave goodbye to those extra beds. And not only that, these students are more vulnerable to rogue landlords and rogue letting agencies because they'll be signing contracts while overseas or in a rush while they're land while they've landed. And I'm lying in bed at night, not knowing what to do about this, not knowing what to think about this. And in the wise words of Marcus Aurelius, I'm just going to choose not to have an opinion yet. So. Well, I mean, for someone with no opinion someday, that was, uh, <laughs> that, was a, that, that was a roller coaster ride. Um, <laughs> Rachel, I, look, I mean, look, 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 one, one of the things that, that you know, is, is clearly true about this debate, and to be fair to Ian Mansfield, he has put some stuff in that, that, that not just t- talks about accommodation, but responds to the idea that universities shouldn't grow too fast. And there's, a, there's something about geography here, isn't there, about where we might want public subsidy to go and where we might not want it to go because of the impacts on places. Yes, uh, that is true. So can I just um, uh, add to the, uh, the thoughts already going around in Sunday's head? Uh, because, of course, uh, regulation and policy is a very, very blunt tool. So, you know, at Warwick, we actually have a surplus of accommodation, a surplus of it. So I don't see why our student uh, number cap, we should have uh, been subject to that because we could take more students and accommodate them with a kind of letter of rents. So there's lots of affordable um, accommodation as well. So I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to say that. Um, yes, it's, it's very accurate. I mean, in many ways, you know, this whole move to... Um, regional power and devolution of power out of London should be giving rise to those kinds of debates. Um, and certainly uh, what I see a lot of the kind of the, the big, quite powerful uh, regional devolved authorities and things work very, very seriously with their universities and regard their universities absolutely as kind of uh, anchor institutions and partners um, but of course, you know, the way that the government is do, doing this local devolution, strength begets strength and weakness just gets weaker. So in many ways, it is probably, um, I mean, I haven't done a survey of this, but I, I, my, my working assumption is that the poorer and uh, less powerful uh, local authorities and areas probably don't benefit from having universities um, who are strong partners for them and could do with that in order to kind of kickstart their economic growth and help them with that. Um, so, yes, I agree. I kind of think there is an argument for kind of somebody from going out and talking and at least putting those ideas and helping them put together a sufficiently powerful business plan to make it happen. Gary, if I was talking to your mm. student officers at Durham Students Union, mm. I would certainly over the past few years have heard versions of, well, it's, the university's expanding too quick. Mm. I, I do think there's something to be said. I mean, let, let's be charitable to Ian and Policy Exchange. Um, there's something about a need for planning, which is being understood as a need for national control. So national control, I think the point Rachel made in terms of a um, blunt tool of regulation and and Ian's proposing it, no institution shrinks by more than 5%, but that is still quite a lot of people and money. Um, So I think a national approach to this is is, uh, going nowhere. But planning, I think, locally is is a really interesting debate. Um, You're absolutely right that universities incentivised or pressured to grow at certain paces in certain areas have done so. And that's been a policy imperative that's really hard to avoid. So they've done it. Um, I do think there's something to be said about in the policy exchange report about 
the um, the criteria upon which uh, Ian proposes that institutions would be allowed to do grow or be controlled. And it includes, as, as Sunday and Rachel said, um, beds. It also touches on things like... Um, the regional, uh, the national skills analysis and uh, advice from the Migration Council on skill shortages. But were that locally, were an institution able to grow locally and plan itself in terms of its skill profile, its housing? That's so complex, but maybe that's got some legs. Because you're right, Durham had to, I mean, had to is the contentious issue, grew by choice in certain areas because certain things were incentivised. If other things were incentivised, perhaps we wouldn't have problems with housing and we'd have more part-time or distance education. Maybe we'd have um, less need to grow um, business as, as a uh, thing that brings in um, a lot of subsidy across the institution. And we'd have had more incentive to grow languages or other things which are particularly important. But I think carrots, fewer sticks. Absolutely. <laughs> Always the mantra. Interesting stuff. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Sean Waring. And this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about leadership and the attributes that differentiate the best leaders. Lots of people at all career stages have the attributes for leadership, and I know because I meet them every day. I hope you can spot some of your own attributes in my blog. I want to encourage conversations about leadership and leadership literacy. Fostering the right attributes in leaders from early in people's careers will lead, I hope, to a more diverse and therefore better leadership in the higher education sector, and better leadership will lead to better higher education. Even if your job title doesn't say head of or dean or director today, I hope you'll be thinking about whether one day you'll be just the right person to lead a university. Now, on Monday, we published some new stuff that we've been working on at One Key with Pearson on cost of living and belonging, Rachel. Hmm. So, um, probably unsurprisingly, um, they find a link. Um, maybe more surprising was that out of the um, number of students they spoke to, about 60% felt that they were managing okay, which I thought was quite high. I was quite surprised um, by that. But 35% were struggling. And, um, you know, it seems to me uh, perfectly natural that when uh, students were struggling to meet their kind of cost of living costs, um, they were, you know, they are not feeling um, as if they can join in and make the best experience of their university life, which, of course, then affects their, their sense of belonging. Um, and that, to me, uh, wasn't a surprise. I mean, obviously, it's a disappointment, but not a surprise. One of the things that I thought was very interesting coming out of this, though, was that, and this felt very counterintuitive, that of the ones, um, of those uh, students the ones who were struggling were much less likely to ask the university for help. So those that were kind of feeling as if they were managing okay would ask the university for help, but not the ones who were struggling. And I thought that felt very counterintuitive and I think really deserves a kind of a, a further dig through conversations with those students. Now, Sunday, you've been uh, across this, close to this, and we'll almost certainly have theories on that. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> so, like, okay, first of all, as one of the authors of the report, I think the, the large percentage of students managing okay is a reflection of the amount of students who have time in between paid work and study to sit down and do a survey on the cost of living. Um, so do bear that in mind. Um, I think, yeah, like you said, those who can't meet costs are less likely to ask for help. And this does fascinate me because... We tend, at the moment, we see cost of living as like a sort of across the board, tangible issue, generically affecting everyone, needing tangible, generic, across the board solutions. And we have to understand that there are intangible concepts of entitlement, stigma, comfort, 
individuals live in normality, rationality, the ability to identify an awareness of your own needs and a sense of belonging. And um, you can get the exact same initiative and the exact same comms reaching some students and not others. And there is this like, because I did the qualitative work um, on this, which is going to be coming out at a later date. There is a deep psychological process and impact around being poor. And if we fail to understand it, we are failing to understand the students experiencing it. What we're not going to do as a sector of professional classes go, oh, <laughs> those working class, they're such a proud people. Like, we're not going to do that. Um, but what we are going to do is understand the psychological and the practical. Um, so the psychological, um, right, Jim, let me ask you this. If you allow me to uh, speculate from my lived experience of growing up in abject financial and emotional poverty, which, <laughs> which, <laughs> which student is going to be the one more comfortable and more entitled to ask for help? The one who is given a generous pocket money allowance simply for gracing their parents' lives with their presence, or the one who dragged themselves up through childhood and had to earn from the age of 13 or 14 every penny they ever spent. And remember that the latter of these two, okay, the latter has learnt to live without they are used to making do they know what poverty is and they know how to get through it now on a practical level poor people are used to hedging our bets so you've got a cost of living bursary fund and I say all right okay do you know what I could sit down all evening spend several hours laying bare my soul my bank statements my inside leg management whatever it is and I could possibly get 50 quid or I could spend the evening working in a bar and definitely get 50 quid. What am I going to do? Because you know what? No, it doesn't surprise me at all, this outcome. It does not surprise me at all that the ones struggling to to make ends meet are the ones taking up help and the ones who can't make ends meet are going and bearing it on their own. doesn't surprise me. Interesting stuff. Now, Gary... um... Um, you, in, in recent years, have worked at both the University of Sunderland Students' Union and the University of Durham Students' Union. And, and I guess, you know, um, for, in terms of your lived experience of kind of, you know, serving those different sets of students, one, one of the things, you know, certainly the Happy Student uh, Academic Experience Survey pointed out earlier in the year is that this, this is really a tale of multiple sets of students. And you, 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 must, uh, you must reflect on that quite often. Yeah, it's um, the first thing I should say is that... Um, both institutions are full of brilliant, lovely people who care intensely about the issue. The difference, I suppose, is the realisation about what that means in reality, as Sunday said, from the perspective of somebody who isn't involved in the deep committees, who doesn't influence policy in the same way, and, and is just the, the victim of policy decisions. Um, but that's not to say that both institutions aren't full of people who care a lot. Um, the thing that really stood out for me in the research was about the proportion of people who feel their university is trying to support students with the cost of living. And it really surprised me that more people who are generally able to cover costs think their university is supporting them, whereas people who are struggling to cover basic costs, there's a, lesser, uh, there's a smaller proportion of those students who think that their university is trying to support them. Now, I, I do absolutely agree with Sunday that is um, there's a lot of psychology in that, and I'm looking forward to the qualitative um response. Um, I was also really interested in some work Wonky did, which showed that um, work at Durham is one of the few places that has actually shifted its student support thresholds um, over the um, past couple of years in terms of the Durham grant. And that is because of um, Durham officers lobbying really hard for that. But the key difference, again, riffing off Sunday, is that when you're struggling to survive, your ability to engage in policy decisions about support thresholds is minimal. Like you're living your life. Actually, the experience that you have means that you need to work, you need to um, make short-term decisions and short-term uh, survival decisions, 
Whereas we have been really lucky at Durham in that we have had a degree of social capital and a degree of comfort where we've been able to negotiate at policy levels for everybody else. I think institutions can do a lot more in terms of incentivizing or making accessible access to those policy decisions because otherwise it will increasingly become informed by well-intentioned people, but who will get it just not quite right. And that is just such a shame um, when there is such a lot of need and such a lot of opportunity. Rachel, I guess the other, the, the, you know, as, as well as that sort of, um, you know, understanding the both the psychology and the practicalities of this stuff in terms of different types of student, there is something else going on here, isn't there, which is the richer institutions tend to have the richer students and have got more money to spend on this type of support. And the poorer institutions have got more poor students and they've got less money to spend on this type of support. Yes, that is probably that is probably true. Um, albeit, I would say that I mean I can't speak for uh, um, other institutions, but I know you know increasingly. I mean, Warwick is a relatively uh, rich because it's a successful institution, but you know we are putting more and more money uh, into those schemes. But as you say, you know it's because uh, we have the the luxury that we can afford it. I mean, um, I thought uh, Sunday's uh, response was really interesting. And and what I would say is, and, you know, and also what Gary was saying about reducing the threshold and uh, publishing publishing more widely, the policies are really good suggestions. But any more suggestions uh, that um, comes out of that research to help universities reach those poorer students and provide support for them without, as she said, patronizing them or shaming them or anything like that i think universities would really really embrace that yes interesting now now now, uh, before we move on sunday just give us a quick sense of where this all goes next um so we have got what we've got another report coming out um which is basically looking at uh the qualitative um elements around this um and the findings of which should be being launched at our Festival of Higher Education next month. Um, however, we still have got some focus groups to run, which I am looking forward to and are going to be great. Um, but it means that I'm going to be sat cross-legged on my study floor with, surrounded by post-it notes once again, um, which is actually me and my element. So I don't know what I'm saying, but but yeah, it's going to be great. Keep tuned. Keep, keep tuned in to Wonky for that. Now, the Israel-Hamas war has intensified this week and so has conflict on campus, Gary. Yes, I think the... Let's say, you know, it, it's important we talk about this because it is happening on campus, but the um, degree of uh, harm, fear, anxiety that people who are um, affected because of their location, you know, pe- our students and staff who are in the region, our students and staff who have friends and family in the region is so urgent and visceral. I think it would be really um, uh, callous and unwise not to acknowledge that, that at the start. Um, and uh, Rachel, I know, and I have been in so many meetings at our own institutions trying to find a way to think through this at the moment. And there's a lot of guidance coming from uh, national government, from DFE, from the Home Office, uh, from from FCDO, from loads of places about um, trying to help universities understand how to navigate this. Uh, Rob Simcox, who is the um, new government anti-extremism um, and um, anti-terrorism um ahead uh counter extremisms are that is his title he's speaking today about what um in his view may be uh, a permissive environment for anti-semitism i think it's important to acknowledge that that is not untrue like that there are anti-semitism is tolerated in ways that other forms of racism are not uh it is 
um, made into a debate about is it real, is experience, and that is a harm that our Jewish staff and students have um, experienced for years and the sector has struggled with. I do think, though, that Rob's um, analysis of how that has come to be in terms of a failure of um, uh, cultural and multicultural uh, policy is just as unhelpful a blunt tool. I think it's, if anything, I've, I've learned over the years of being part of student unions and, and part of um, leading uh, responses like this locally, is that sensitivity and sophistication is really hard, but so important. And I think I would have hoped that a first intervention into this space in such a complex time recognised that. He hasn't made the speech yet at time of recording, let's be fair. But I do think this is um, something where care is just so important. Now, Rachel, you will have been uh, uh, handling and dealing with all sorts of bits and bobs on campus this week, presumably in conjunction with the uh, Students' Union. Give, give us a sense of some of the kind of tensions that have come up. Uh, well, uh, there are obviously the kind of the, uh, the political tensions, uh, which are felt uh, very strongly on uh, both sides, uh, just as they are in the actual region themselves. And, you know, obviously, emotions are running very, very high, um, which is what you'd expect. And, you know, and people are very, very traumatized um, by what's happening, as well as fearful and again, that's on, that's on both sides. So, you know, I must say, uh, I am kind of with Gary that anything which um, is potentially inflaming the situation seems to me to be deeply harmful and ill-judged. So our, our kind of, you know, uh, high-level um, concern at the moment is to try and reduce uh, any kind of inflammatory actions uh, where we can uh, to try and provide whatever support and concern uh, that are felt by you know all sides uh, of our campus community and to try and as best we can to kind of foster that sense of we are all in it as a community and we need to be kind and supportive to each other and we won't tolerate kind of anything that you know is lacking kindness Having said that, of course, you know, there is a, another tension, which is kind of uh, at the more kind of legal policy end, which is the tension with free speech, uh, which, as we all know, with the legislation, you know, there was kind of enhanced uh, scrutiny and emphasis on free speech at the moment. And and that tension is, um, is quite a difficult one uh, to manage. Um, so... You know, the legal position is relatively clear in the fact that, you know, obviously the Terrorism Act uh, kind of trumps free speech. Um, but the Terrorism Act itself, um, I don't know if any others have kind of read it, but, you know, it was passed in 2000, very much in the wake of uh, 9-11. And there is very, very uh, little case law on it. And what case law there has, it, it would be really, really easy for uh, student societies who feel very, very passionate to fall the wrong side of the line with potentially, you know, really dreadful consequences. Um, so we have been trying to, while not stifling any kind of freedom of expression, uh, just trying to send warnings that actually this is really, really tricky territory. Um so it's a really difficult position on every single... Sunday, obviously on uh, both Wonky Live this week, for uh, those that uh, saw it, and uh, on the site this week, 
Um, certainly I've been discussing the problem of kind of context, right? So you, you, you can evaluate whether something is anti-Semitic or glorifies terrorism from a content point of view. But then when you place a, a set of behaviors in context, there might be an additional kind of evaluation to do. You, you know, the, the waving of a flag or the using of a phrase might not fall, you know, might not be bannable in one context, but would be bannable in another. Now, now you will be familiar with those debates in the early part of the last decade around lad culture and the argument that said, whilst types of lad culture weren't in and of themselves counting as harassment, allowing lad culture to flourish was leading to actual harassment later. And it seems to me that on the one hand, there are people in this debate of the sort, you know, as, as, as Gary said, Robin Simcox arguing that um, allowing lots of pro-Palestinian activism and demos and rallies and so on is, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the environment in which extremism can flourish. There are other people that would say, well, hold on, it's really important that we kind of hold on to free speech um, and that, you know, students have got a perfect right to uh, protest and celebrate and, you know, back the Palestinian cause, albeit that they obviously haven't, you know, that should steer clear of um, promoting or, or, or glorifying terrorism. So, so that context question is almost impossible, isn't it, for you know, a student's union or a university or even a student society? Uh, no, I, I understand what you're asking. I, I think f- for me, this comes back, to, and, and my heart goes out to student unions who are trying to deal with this at the moment, by the way, um, because I can remember being a student union officer and you do end up sort of helicoptered or parachuted into these you know, deep, deep political issues that you, you might not have much much knowledge of. And I think with, with lad culture and with um, especially things like anti, anti-Semitism, um, I don't want to use the term microaggression, but like the, these are issues where unless you know what to look out for, so things like rape myths with lad culture, things like uh, anti-Semitic um, dog whistles, right? These are things that a you know, an events coordinator in a student union on 27 grand is not necessarily going to have had the training and sort of background um, to to really like thoroughly understand. And it was something that we really struggled with um, when I was student union president, um, when the higher education freedom of speech field started coming in. And we would have, we you know, we, we didn't have a big block grant to go by. We didn't have legal people to consult but we did have the university sort of breathing down our neck saying why has your event coordinator on <laughs> 27 grand just given the green light for this known fascist to come or you know what I mean it, it was sort of issues like that and I think this is an area where universities are really going to have to like understand that they're going to have to elevate their student unions to a sort of board level and really ratify their ability to, you know, regulate, coordinate, understand the issues that their students are facing, understand the political issues that the students want to talk about on campus, that want to sort of exercise their free speech, and all the while understanding, you know, the tangible fear and harm that other students may be experiencing from that. I am, um, I, I do see some students that are doing it really well, but yeah, I would say that, uh, it's it's about capacity it's about resources and it's about getting to the heart of the issue as well Gary one of the things obviously some of this is about um 
you know, there being people who can make the case that even if something isn't unlawful or illegal, it may well upset other students. And, we, you know, we, we ought to want students to at least think about the impact they're having on other students. But the other thing that strikes me is um, there are other actors around, aren't there? So, you know, a student union was talking to me the other day about uh, a demo, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian demo that they'd risk assessed and so on. But then when it actually happened, there was concern that various other kind of community groups and community actors had sort of turned up, almost hijacked it. Some were offensively wearing paraglider stickers. Do you know what I mean? I mean, the, the permeability of higher education and its student body is even more significant than it perhaps was in the early part of the last decade. And the permeability question was big then too. One thing I would say, just following uh, Sunday and Rachel, is that I, I think it's important not to frame the um, uncertainty or um, questioning decisions just around students. I think the number of staff in institutions who are making decisions or are the first point of contact with things who are also unsure what to do and might make the wrong decision and need to support it to make good decisions is really important. And that, I think, is, is um, how I understand your point, Jim, which is that so institutions just so big with so many connections to so many people um, that actually the way in which a, a the permeability point comes up is just everywhere. I think about, for example, the uh, you know I'm, I'm aware of one um, university as well as its student union who have had a lot of press contacts where people have been going through um, student Instagram accounts, going this person is a student at your place and has said this thing. This um, staff member at your institution has said this thing, mm. and the institution, the student union, having any form of responsibility for that statement. It is it's clearly not it, it, they don't but there is a sense of responsibility in the sense but what are you going to do about it and that's the point at which i think campuses and communities have to be um really good at talking to each other about what do we do about this because the sense that there is a single answer which is always university applied is just going to be far too blunt the, the unfortunate side that i think we find from uh, the our experience thinking about um, Ukraine, thinking about some of the uh, conflicts in Hong Kong, thinking about some of the things all across the world, is this isn't going to be a, um, this is going to go on for a while. And actually, we're going to have to make a number of decisions and convene a number of conversations about what we do. And as people, external actors complicate that, we need to get much better at recognising them, you know, having contacts with um, local organisations. There is obviously a, a, a complication in taking advice from that from um, only the police, from only um, the Home Office. I think it's really important that institutions and student unions are really part of civil society. So engaging with uh, community religious groups, talking directly to um, to UJS, to CST, to other organisations who can actually offer expertise because you're, you're absolutely right. We are just so complex, permeable institutions these days that there is a real risk Rachel, I've, uh, I've, I've read a couple of letters this week, one obviously from Gillian um, Keegan to universities and one actually that's come out this morning from Gillian Keegan to schools. And one of the things that's really noticeable is the difference in tone. So, you know, the one to schools is actually quite supportive in terms of, you know, trying to dial down conflict on campus. Whereas I did think that the, the government's letter to universities was quite finger waggy. Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's just quite... It- I mean, the whole tenor of the correspondence with universities is enormously uh, finger-waggy. It just depends on quite uh, how quickly the finger is wagging. This wasn't wagging quite as quickly as some of the other uh, letters we've had. But even so, I mean, I think the tone is absolutely reprehensible. Um, And the thing that really, really irks me is as if we need to be told. I mean, as if. 
you know, universities are already doing this. You know, the letters always come too late by the time they've all been kind of uh, wordsmithed. Uh, she's never actually run a university. She has absolutely no idea what is actually involved on the ground, and that is pretty much the same of DFE and OFS. And they always come. We're all ready doing everything that, you know, she is telling us to do. And the implication that we wouldn't be doing any of this unless she told us to do it, you know, quite frankly, is insulting um, at, at the best. So um, I didn't. I hadn't seen the ones at the schools. All I can say is I'm very glad that she uh, writes to them in a nicer tone than she writes to Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, finally this week, London South Bank University's English Social Mobility Index is out, published by Happy Sunday. Who's adding value? Right. So, uh, yes, as you said, London South Bank University's English Social Mobility Index has been released, um, and it ranks universities in England based on the social distance. Does it feel really weird to say social distance after COVID? But anyway, social distance yeah. travelled <laughs> by their... Sorry, based on the social distance travelled by their graduates, um, as in social mobility, not as in covid um in previous years uh we've had a top 20 but this year all of the office for students registered uh, providers um excluding specialist institutions are included and this is um using a data set from 2021 to 22 the university of bradford ashton university and city university of london uh, take the top three places and they are followed by free rust group universities which are king's college london lse and queen mary's and then free post 19 1992 universities, Birmingham City, Wolverhampton and Huddersfield. Um, and the index is calculated by using measures of access. So the proportion of entrants from indexes of multiple deprivation, quintiles one and two, but quintile one is double weighted and combining these with continuation measures and, and graduate outcomes. Um, all graduate modes of study do feature, um, but this year apprentices have had to be excluded due to a shortage of comparable data. Now, Rachel, uh, down six places to number 26 for Warwick. I know. So we need, obviously uh, need to look at it really uh, carefully to try and um, see what is going on. Um, and of course, it may be that actually, even though we are doing very well in ourselves, it's just, you know, others are doing better. Um and I do think that, you know, uh, many of the universities uh, mentioned, um, to which I give, kind of give, give credit and applause, um, 
you know, are very good, especially the ones in London, at being able to connect their graduates uh, with jobs in, the, in, in their local economy, uh, which can be uh, trickier potentially when you don't have so many. I think we've got about 27% of our graduates um, stay in the region, but they're kind of the rest dispersed. Uh, but obviously kind of uh, more to do, but it is something that we take enormously seriously. as Gary, one of the things I worry about with this exercise is that a university can be kind of quite good on access for a group of programmes and then quite good on, you know, graduate salaries for another group of programmes, but they not, might not be the same students. <laughs> um, you know, you know I, I, think, I find it hard to visit a medical school and think, well, you know, on the one hand, a medical school will be propping up the salary numbers in this index, but you know, they almost that medical school almost certainly won't be propping up the access numbers in, in this index, and that's a problem, isn't it, with large universities like of the sort we have these days? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, Jim. I, I uh, went through an access scheme to get into the University of Birmingham about a million years ago, and was very aware that when uh, I left university with my colleagues, they went into like the city uh, and were earning megabucks, and I, and I went to work in a student union. Uh, so the access kid actually did not earn a lot of money um, compared to people who had an awful lot to start with. They continued to get quite a lot. Um, but of course, you, d- you don't connect the uh, various points. It's like a plunk. Like you don't know which end of the straw you're going to pull. Um, I, I do think, though, charitably, this is a relatively new index and it's talking about the right sort of thing in a way. Could it be improved? Absolutely. Yes, it could. Um, you know, would I love Durham to be better than 74? Yes, I would. Um, but I, I am interested, I suppose, in that this is an attempt by London South Bank to, to have a debate about this issue. Um, I, but, but I absolutely agree that un, unless like, we, there was some form of longitudinal, long data on people's uh, progress and that sort of stuff, wouldn't that be lovely? Um, I, I think it's interesting if flawed. Sunday, over the past year or so, I've been dealing with a, um, a, a family member's death. So I've been, you know, I've, I've been the person in the family that's been, uh, you know, sorting out all the admin. And at various points, so someone's had to watch me sign a piece of paper. And you get that list of professions, don't you? The kind mm. of, you know, all, all, all the. And each time I've found someone from a profession, I've often thought, I wonder which university they were from and what background they have. And, and mm. I guess, you know, one of the worries would be that whilst this does surface a debate about, you know, the relationship between inputs and outputs, the danger is it allows the university to feel comfortable when actually it might not be making that much difference to those really important, you know, professions that end up feeling like they run the country because they have to watch you sign a piece of paper. Do you know that's really interesting that you're breaking it down by course and subject and school um, because you're absolutely right. There does need to be a more granular uh approach to this I think um if I can get my work yeah so what I'm gonna say is that it would be um interesting to see this breaking down a bit more by core school uh ethnicity gender disability geography um because actually there is as you say like um like we do need a more detailed understanding of how people from different backgrounds going into different professions experience social mobility um and of course area codes provide some insight. <laughs> um, but within this data, demographics like, um, say, take working class British students, working class British students of Chinese and Indian background who do go 
do go more into like medical schools do extremely well on social mobility outcomes compared to their white counterparts. And I think if institutions want to look at their ranking in this table and learn from it and sort of shape policy interventions and initiatives around it, then yeah, we would need we'd need a more thorough for a breakdown there. Rachel, obviously lots of people at the moment, in England at least, are, are think, thinking about the planning processes to develop their new access and participation plan. And obviously, one of the things people are invited to do is look at student characteristics and look at gaps. But actually, interestingly, of course, we don't have a department of um, Afro-Caribbean students and universities don't have a department of poorer students. They have academic departments. And, you know, I I wonder about the kind of practicalities of being able to influence kind of both access and participation practice practice at kind of subject program faculty level. Uh, Yes, well, I think that is true. I mean, we have a kind of an inclusive education uh, program as we talk, which um, so at the university, um, and you know, our education executive, you know, are very much kind of uh, owning this. And a lot of the way that they do it is by talking to the departments, you know, at a pretty granular level about what they're doing, what they could be doing more of, and what they, um, you know, and what they need support with. Um, so that's kind of uh, how we do it at Warwick. Um, can I just say something, though, slightly different, which is a bugbear of mine, um, and it very much um, is about how this government views the success of students, where everything is measured by salary. And again, it's such a blunt instrument, and, and I find it insulting. You know, there are lots of really, really worthy we you know society cannot function without them types of jobs which don't pay very well and the and the students who and graduates who go into those jobs should be applauded not viewed as if they're failures because they're not earning as much as they would be if they went into the city it's such a crude measure i mean all of the kind of you know the outcomes data is measured on it it was supposed to be in as a pro term because they didn't have the um department didn't have any other data but they were supposed to look at it and review it and try and start building up that data so as well as you know uh, Sunday's point about kind of looking at characteristics especially including intersectionality as well which I think is uh, really really interesting too um, and it needs to be looked all the data needs to be analyzed from that light but we actually we need a different way of judging success uh, not just financial. Gary, it's a, it's a point well made, isn't it? But I guess, mm. I guess the danger is that uh, some people hear Rachel's argument and think, well, that's what about and excusism? Um, I think, I mean, I, I agree with Rachel's point in part, I suppose, but you're right, Jim. I think that salary is important, isn't it? Like we, we can't talk about in, in the other parts of this podcast about the impact of cost of living and affordability um, and the extent to which salary matters to students and I suppose their families as well as, as a way in which they have some freedom in the world um because that is what matters to them that that is uh ha- a measure of how they think they gain their freedom and a chance in life um i reflect that one of the most mortifying and embarrassing things that ever happened to me was when uh my vice chancellor's pa took me for a dinner so i could learn how to eat properly like i'd, I'd never like gone to a three-course meal before i didn't know what forks were when i stood up when i took my jacket off and i knew how to eat like i wasn't like a savage um but uh but but cultural capital like how would you measure that in an index but I, I absolutely agree with Rachel's broader point that social mobility if it is the ability to talk to people to know when to say things where to go to things what to wear how to uh, behave 
I mean, how do you measure that? But if you don't get that through university, where do you? I mean, Durham is so, it's, it's civilizing, I suppose, um, that sense of being able to grow in company. But, um, but I don't think there's uh, a very easy data collection method for that, is there? So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Rachel, Gary, Sunday, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. Uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.